Well, as you can see up on the screen, I've entitled this morning's message uh, Warnings and Exhortations to Discouraged Believers. And I'd like to begin with kind of an unusual account uh, of an animal called the sea squirt. Anybody familiar with the sea squirt this morning? It, it's a unique animal. I'll read from uh, our daily bread. The sea squirt is a strange creature found attached to rocks and shells. It looks like a soft plastic tube waving in the current, drawing its nutrients from the passing water. It lives a passive life, far removed from its once active youth. You see, the sea squirt starts life as a tadpole with a, a primitive spinal cord and a brain. It helps those two things help it find food and avoid harm. As it grows into a juvenile, it spends its days exploring the ocean, but something happens when it reaches adulthood. Settling on its rock, it stops exploring and stops growing. And in a macabre twist of nature, it digests its own brain. The sea squirt. Someone once said that to watch a, a Christian, an infant, a baby, and brand new Christian begin to grow is a beautiful thing. To help a Christian grow is a privilege and a solemn task. But to make sure that a Christian grows is an impossibility. For we cannot make anyone do anything. Sometimes... Many have come to chapter 6 of Hebrews as the definitive section on the assurance of salvation or the lack thereof. If you've ever read the passage, which we will go through this morning or not, you may agree that it is certainly classic. It is certainly uh, has the potential of being definitive. But rather, here in these first 12 verses, what we find really are Two parts. There's a warning to discouraged believers, and there are exhortations to discouraged believers. The writer, who simply wants to see, wants to see believers grow, wants to help them grow, but knows that it's impossible for him to make them grow, writes this text under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, of course, to achieve that goal in their lives. Will you back up with me to verse 1 of chapter 6? And I want us to read through the first two verses. In verse 1, we find the writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and 
of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Launching into this passage, launching into these verses and this subject, it's clear that uh, the division from verse uh, from chapter 5 to chapter 6 really shouldn't be there because it's a continuation. If you were with us last week, if you were watching at home, you may recall that at the end of chapter 5, the writer is dealing with the immaturity of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, that more than likely could have been around in Jerusalem some 30 years earlier at the inception of the New Testament church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in those last couple of verses of chapter 5, exhorts them that even though by now they should be teachers, they have need of someone to give them milk. As we enter the first couple of verses of chapter 6, we see it's a continuation of the subject of the Christian maturing, specifically the Jewish Christian maturing. And we will apply it across the board to the New Testament believer this morning as we go. We find the word therefore in verse 1, again of chapter 6. Guess what number <laughs> the use of that word. This is the 12th time the word is used. Building upon what has gone before. And we find that the author wants to leave the elementary principles or the ABCs, if you would, the, the rudiments, the basics, the building blocks of what it means to be in Christ and to move on to perfection. Now, one of the keys to the passage and understanding the general theme of the writer is the understanding of this word perfection. It's an ancient Greek word pronounced teleotes, which really comes along with the idea of maturity, not perfection in the way in which we think of it. In other words, the author is reinforcing that there's no way that we're going to find you know, perfection in the eyes of God on this side of eternity. But we can move to a place of Christian maturity on this side of eternity. He says there in, in the second part of verse 1 and verse 2, he gives these phrases of not, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and of eternal judgment. He gives these phrases in pairs, if you notice. And it is interesting how these pairs go together. He has repentance and faith, baptism and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What's necessary for anybody studying this passage, reading this passage, for us this morning 
going through this passage is to ask ourselves a question at various points in the passage, and this, this would be one of those points. And the question would go like this. Of those distinct pairs, what is distinctively Christian about the list? Of those pairs, what is distinctively Christian? Someone once wrote, when we consider the rudiments one by one, if we take them all singularly, it is remarkable how little in the list is distinctive of Christianity, for practically every item could have, uh, have its place in fairly orthodox Jewish community. Each of them indeed acquires a new significance when we place it into the context of, of our Christian faith. But the impression we get is that the existing Jewish beliefs and practices were used, those that we just read, they were being used as a foundation upon which to build Christian truth. And the author wants to address that. He wants to hit that tendency toward the Hebrew community who believed themselves to be, rightfully so, those who were the carriers of the oracles of God to a pagan world. But when we arrive at the time of Jesus and the scene upon which Jesus enters the world and comes as our Savior, what we find is that that entire nationality of people, meaning the Jew, who were responsible to carry this letter all the way, well, up to the New Testament, all the way until that time in human history, had developed a system of religion that they could do various acts in without a serious relationship with the true and the living God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, doctrines of baptisms. If you're taking notes this morning, the word being used there, uh, baptismos, is not a word regularly used in the New Testament to describe Christian baptism, which is baptizo. In three Areas of the New Testament, Hebrews 9, verse 10, Mark 7, verse 4, Mark 7, verse 8, the word being used there refers to ceremonial washings. Uh, Jesus was speaking about when they come from the marketplace, um, his disciples, that they do not, rather the Pharisees, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, the pitchers, copper vessels, and uh, other things. Mark 7, verse 4. Uh, washing something ceremonially is the word that's being used there. And so we find clearly that in these elementary principles um, that... Well, let's back up for a moment. 
Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He came into his own and his own received him not. He entered this world and into a community of of what was to be a God-seeking people, the Hebrew nation, which had what we know to be Judaism. Okay, right? And so, fact, Christianity came out of Judaism. There are those throughout human history who have wanted to to deny that fact and somehow separate the two, but it is a truth that Christianity did grow out of Judaism and the temptation here was very subtle for one who was an orthodox practice of Judaism to slip back into those things that were comfortable rituals, comfortable Actions that helped them believe they were in relationship with God, but were only superficial. And how does that apply today? Well, without you know giving the whole card away and, and saying, okay, we're done with the message, you can go home. The truth of the matter is here in this great nation of ours, the United States of America, we have documents upon documents that our founding fathers were believers in the Bible. They were believers in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They were believers in the God of the Bible and wrote and practiced Christian truth and, in fact, uh, embedded Christian truth in, in the founding documents of our country. Now, nobody has to go amen or hurrah, but perhaps even the reason that we don't shout hallelujah at this moment is because of the, the odd point in history that we find ourselves living that though that is our background as a nation of people, though that is our background as a form of government, today in our society, and it's been coming and coming and coming, it didn't happen overnight. We have a variety of opinions of when it began and how it began, but nothing new is under the sun. We, as a nation of people, have moved so far away from Christian truth. We have embraced individuality over conformity. And so here in this picture, what I'm painting is that a person can slide in and out of what might look to be a Christian environment or a church and practice religious things without necessarily knowing Christ. When he says, when the author says, after giving this list of of rudiment elementary principles, which could have applied in Judaism and 
he wants to address not using those as a building block for Christianity. He says, this we will do if God permits. It's not a question. It's, he's not putting a question before his reader. You know, if God will permit this, we'll move on. No, it's a statement. It's a statement that we will move on past these. God will permit it. Now we come to, uh, after verse 3, we come to verse 4, in which the uh, classic portion of the passage begins. I'd like to read a kind of a, I think, a summary statement that makes a lot of sense. When we come to a controversial passage, and if none of you this morning were aware that Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6 is controversial, you've now been informed. When coming to a controversial passage, the temptation is to make the passage fit into what we think it's supposed to say. The temptation at times is to alter the theology of it so that it fits our concept of a right theology. But someone once said, systems of theology have some value as they show how biblical ideas are connected and show that the Bible does not contradict itself. But the way to write systems begins with a right understanding of the text, not one that bends the text to fit the system. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of, oh gosh, turn of the century, he wrote this, I'll quote it for us. He says, We come to this passage ourselves with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child. And whatever we find therein, uh, to state it. And if it may not seem to agree with something we have hitherto held, we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of Scripture. Love that man's solid approach to the scriptures itself. So let's read it. Verse 4, I'll bring you there. And we're going to read through verse 6. Eyes on verse 4, here we go. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Should be a passage in your Bible that is marked clearly, but even more importantly, understood deeply. The impossibles of Hebrew of Hebrews. I I know early on, I've been walking with the Lord some 35, almost 40 years, and uh, summer of 1980, um, I know when I would read this, I mean, I would go, I would do a lot of things to try and help myself understand this passage and what it means. And one of the things I would do was would 
question the word impossible. Does it really mean impossible? Is impossible, maybe he means difficult or, or doesn't often happen or something like that. But when we compare this word impossible to the rest of the impossibles in the book of Hebrews, we come to an assumed understanding. Um, there is this one in Hebrews 6.4. In Hebrews 6.18, we're told that it is impossible for God to lie. In Hebrews 10.4, we're told that it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. In Hebrews 11.6, we're told that it is, is impossible to please God without faith. Guess what impossible means in 4.6? Impossible. Thought you would appreciate that. No extra charge. So it stands immovable. I mean, he's saying that what he's about to give in terms of a list and consequential action after that it is impossible. Then he moves on. And uh, someone once said, that this is an impressive spiritual, uh, an impressive list of spiritual experiences, right? These are, these are impressive experiences spiritually, as we read through that list. The debate has been, some of you familiar with the debate probably know it already, but the debate is whether or not the experience is an experience of salvation or is it an experience that someone had short of salvation? That's the debate. If we look at each um, descriptive word, it, it helps us kind, kind of to describe the experience. So let's do that for a moment. Uh, enlightened, when he says in verse 6, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Uh, the English word, it describes light shining on someone. Okay, so even though in the text, the original text, it's an ancient Greek word, it has the same meaning that it has in our English language. Uh, tasted, the, that word there, has the idea with it twofold, testing as well as tasting uh, in the way that Jesus tasted death. So tasted of uh, when it says, once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift, most likely dealing with salvation, of course, right? Because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin of, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you are saved, and that through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man boast. So, heavenly gift, more than likely salvation, of course. Uh, we read that this person also has become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, end of the verse. That word partakers, original language, means sharing with. In other words, there's a, a fellowship with the Holy Spirit going on here. And so uh, certainly we look at other scriptures about no man can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. 
and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, having a fellowship with the Holy Spirit would incline one to, okay, this is, this is a, a Christian individual, says that they've tasted also of the Word of God, tasted the good Word of God. This means in their experience, whoever this person is and whoever the writer is writing about has experienced the supernatural power of God. They've experienced the supernatural power of God. And what is the supernatural power of God? I, I, I deviate here for just a moment to in, uh, insert that when we think of the supernatural power of God, we may at times think of uh, something as large as a mountain being moved, a dead person rising from the grave. Those are certainly resurrection is scriptural and you see that as the supernatural power of God. Thank you. Maybe let's turn off cell phones. Um, but is it not also true that the supernatural power of God can be something as almost common as us believing a promise of his word? That by the power of his spirit supernaturally, we're moved to accept something in his word as fact and as true. So this person has experienced the supernatural power of God. Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the word of God, and experienced the supernatural power of God. The question is simple. Are these people with these impressive spiritual experiences in fact Christians? Are they God's elect, chosen from before the foundation of the world? Commentators, of which I am not, I'm a Bible teacher, I'm a pastor, those who have written volumes of commentaries and whatnot are divided. They're divided on whether or not the author of Hebrews is, is speaking about someone with those spiritual experiences being a Christian. And so, the division, on the one side, clearly someone can have spiritual experiences, if you will, uh, and still not be saved. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Art, give us an example. Well, all the way... Uh, through Matthew 23, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, right? In Matthew 23, 15, the religious leaders of his day sought to evangelize the Gentile world and those in Israel. Matthew 23, 15. Uh, they had impressive prayer lives. Matthew 23, 14. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They made uh, rigorous commitments, we see in Matthew 23, 16. Um, We also know that they tithed very critically. They made sure they gave the right amount of the right things because that was in their law, uh, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus said, you tithe the mint and the cumin, but you have missed the more weightier things. Religious experiences without a genuine relationship with the true and the living God. It can, it can and has, is exampled for us in scripture. They honored religious tradition, Matthew 23, 29-31. Um, they practiced fasting, Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 12. And uh, yet Jesus said that they were sons of hell, Matthew 23, 15. So, what am I saying? Once again, that old classic, you know, turn of the uh, turn of the decade gospel preacher Keith Green loved a lot of his music. When I was searching, I would listen to this guy's albums, and there is something about the gospel being played and sung in music that can move the heart toward faith. An unbeliever who puts on Christian music is hearing the gospel. Doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily grow thereby, but it can move a person to faith. And I used to listen to Green's albums all the time. And and I remember him saying, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You've heard me use it before. It's an old, but it's a classic statement. Because it's true. You... And I, sitting in the pew, does not equal saved going to heaven in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Glad you're here. It's a good thing to gather. But the intent of the church, the purpose of the church is to witness Christ in this world. I have a dear brother, dear friend, uh, and his wife who were long time here years ago. Many of you probably know them. uh, Dudley and Erna Meyer. And Dudley and Erna were here for many years as Dudley served at the tax assessor's office and then the Lord moved them on to Fernley, uh, Nevada. About four years ago, Erna had a very serious stroke. Um, She was left with very challenging physical conditions. And those physical conditions, uh, because of that stroke, immediately stopped this husband and wife who almost all of their married life had come to church. They'd raised their girls in church. Um, They understood the value of being a part of a local body and and how that that partnership in a local, small fellowship like ours, like where people get to know you and you get to know people and they they can tell, you know, how real Christ in you is or how real he is not. You know, you want to know someone's a Christian, just 
spend a day with them, work with them, do something other than just go to church with them, and you'll get an idea of, of where Christ is really at in their lives. And so here, you know, Dudley and Erna were here for all these years, and, and they went to church all their life and everything, and then Erna had this stroke. And, and I pray if he ever watches this that I would do them honor by sharing this. I, I had the privilege of talking with them recently. You're talking with Dudley. And he reminded me of some of these facts. And, and he, in that conversation, he reminded me of something that I think we should all hold true as believers, as Christians, that as Hebrews 6 is encouraging, exhorting, that we're to grow on to maturity. This is what he said to me. He said, Art, when Ernest's stroke happened, immediately everything changed in my life. His business, he had, had, a, he was, had a truck and was driving cattle and everything. Immediately that stopped. And God took the, even, the desire for it away. He will not leave her. He is by her side 24-7, caring for her. She drove for the first time in four years a couple days ago. But the, the experience of being around multiple people because of the stroke, it's not something that she can do. So they had to stop going to church. And Dudley says to me, cheerful and smiling and laughing, he says, but he says, bro, he says, at some point, you know, you can't just go and sit and go, mm, that's a good message. Mm, yeah, that's a good word. Um, yeah, I know that text. And then get up and leave and, and have nothing else happen in your life. He says, exhort those believers in Valley Springs to get up and go do it out there. Go live it out there. So I'm just passing Dudley's word on to you this morning. He's saying, grow up and go out and infect and impact your world for Christ. Amen? Yeah. And if the seats were empty on a Sunday morning because that's what you're doing, I would say, hallelujah. Praise God. We'd still have a worship service and love the Lord. So there is the possibility of religious activity without true and genuine relationship on the one hand. On the other hand, as the debate goes... From all appearances outwardly, one would tend to believe that the author is speaking of Christians. Now, do we have examples of Christians that fall away in Scripture? We do. Um, the Apostle Paul warmly greeted a man named Demas in Colossians 4.14 Paul greeted uh, Demas warmly. In other words, this man was a brother in the faith. He is called a fellow worker with Paul in Philemon 24. But if you want to turn with me to 2 Timothy 4.10, that's be to the left in your Bible. No, to the right. Yeah, to the left. 2 Timothy 4.10. Get to the T's. 1 and 2 Timothy 4.10. We have a 
For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Paul tells of this Christian man who has forsaken himself and decided to love the present world more than Christ, more than Christ's call on his life, more than his salvation. So we put all this together, what do we come up with? Well, um, again, the word, it's impossible that these with these impressive spiritual experiences, if they fall away, uh, a distinction should be made, if you're taking note this morning, between falling and falling away. The difference between falling and falling away. Proverbs tells us very clearly, Proverbs 24.16 tells us that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. The difference between falling, stumbling, and falling away could be easily viewed in the two lives of a, a Peter and a Judas. Peter, who at times did fall. Judas, a complete falling away and rejection of Christ. A betrayal. The reference to impossible to renew them again to repentance. Um, Some have also brought out the fact that it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance, not impossible for them to be saved. There are some hypotheticals there. Uh, Some look at the possibility that the writer was just making a hypothetical case about something that might happen to maybe happen to someone. Uh, Another idea was that it... Uh, It would be the loss of reward, according to 1 Corinthians, where someone is saved as though by fire, but uh, they've built their relationship on on wood, hay, and stubble, not precious stones. I love what one commentator, he said, this passage has nothing to do with those who fear, lest it condemns them. In other words, if you've ever read these verses and you've thought to yourself, Oh, my goodness. You know, is, is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? Is it possible for me or, or this loved one that I know or something? Listen to this. This passage has nothing to do with those who fear lest it condemns them. The presence of that anxiety, like the cry of the betrayed real mother in the days of Solomon, establishes beyond any doubt that you are not one that has fallen away. If you're even, like Pastor Chuck used to say, if you're even kind of thinking about it, oh, I wonder if that includes me. It, it's, it's clear that you or that individual hasn't stepped far enough away from God to equate falling all the way away. And that is the warning. And knowing that it's a clear and severe warning, 
he moves right to the place where he wants to now, having established that, he wants to exhort his readers to the truths that are equally important. When he says in verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. One commentator, Barclay, says that the whole passage turns on the word better things. The illustration is given in verse 7 and 8 about what happens to someone who does fall completely away into a Christ-rejecting life, a Christ-rejecting world, the earth which drank in the rain and often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. The illustration to the individual spoken of prior, but beloved, he says, we're concerned, we're confident of better things concerning you. As I am today of you, as as you and I walk out this thing called our Christian life, is it not true that we will face severe hardship, great loss, pain, but on the opposite side of that, an immense joy, a jubilation that, that the world cannot infuse us with. The things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner, though I've, I've hit you very clearly about being careful that you just don't slip into ritual and doing things, thinking that you are in relationship with the true and the living God. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. Don't ever lose sight of that. I've heard many a, a guy tell me that early in their years of preaching that though theology is important and clear Bible exposition is extremely important, let's never Leave sight that it's all about Jesus. If you are going to think about Christianity, just think about Jesus. That's what it's about. He is what it's about. And for those who have been discouraged at times, warnings and exhortations to discouraged believers, those who have been discouraged at times. I've been discouraged at times. You've been discouraged at times, I'm sure. We're cut from the same cloth. I'm no different than you. Oh, it always troubles me when someone comes to me and says, Pastor, Pastor, will you pray for me? You've got the connection to God. Oh, time out. I have no more connection to God than you have. We're all cut from the exact same cloth. I'm a wretched sinner who just knows he needs a savior and has found that savior in the person in the work of Jesus Christ 
And for us who have been discouraged at times, in verse 10 he says, that God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That word minister, served. You've served the saints. You've served God's people and you do serve them. You've placed others first beyond yourself. And some of us maybe watching at home this morning wonder, you know, if you could reduce Christianity to one or two or three or five words or something. One word that absolutely applies is the word others. For no greater love hath any man than this, but that he would lay down his life for another. Christ laid his life down for others, for you and for me. And Christ in us, the power of of the Spirit of God within us, calls us to place others first. Did you come in here this morning knowing that about your Christian faith? And that part of maturing in Christ, like an infant. An infant, it's all about me, me, me. I need my food now and your life doesn't matter because you need to take care of me. I can't take care of myself, right? Any of you moms and dads in here? I mean, and, and we sign up for that with this child comes into our lives. It comes through the, the canal and birth and ah, crying. Oh, beautiful baby. Oh, oh, my life has changed. I got to take care of this baby. And the baby grows. You're watching it grows. Your life has now become not your own because your life is given to this infant. And this infant is growing and maturing. And as it grows, as he or she, it, sorry, as he or she grows and becomes a little more independent or able to take care of some of their own needs, some of your routines in life begin to come back to you. And, you know, then it's it's a different picture. Apply the picture to God's love for you as his child. Are others part of your operating protocol today? Husbands, is your wife part of your operating protocol? Have you placed her first ahead of yourself? Wives, is your husband your operating in Christ? Your operating program placed him ahead of yourself. We desire, verse 11, that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, not, don't, don't just hold on to this truth for a little while, but hold on to it forever. Show the same diligence of just holding on to this truth that Christ died for me, a sinner, and because I believe he is the only begotten Son of God, that he was 
crucified, buried, resurrected the third day, and by his affectious blood, I am now accepted in the eyes of God as a beginning point. That I hold on to that all the way to the end and not become sluggish, but imitate those who, verse 12, through faith and patience inherit the promises. Boy, we could spend a half hour on that verse alone. I hope this morning you are warned, but I hope this morning you are exhorted as well. Because it's there in all of its fullness. The sea squirt, interesting animal, right? Starts out and then does nothing. God help us. God teach us. God equip us. God be merciful to us. Be gracious with us. We pray. Will you join me? My team. I'll lead us in a um, short closing prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truths that scripture bring to us. And Lord, each one of us this morning, you are fully aware of. You know our heart. You know our our habits, our... You know when we're impatient. You know when we're patient. And Lord, this morning, all of us, I would go ahead and include each of us, we desire to please you. Never want to displease you, Lord. And so as we're here, we've heard these things. Lord, would you find your way into every heart? And in finding your way into every heart, show us, Lord, show each one where they are with you. And we'll just give you the praise. We know that's a good place to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.